Hello, friend and colleague. It's Nikki from Full Voice Music on our show today, episode 164. I have three fabulous guests and three amazing topics. The first is Jessica Baldwin. She's our popular music specialist. She is talking about helping our students find their authentic musical paths serving our young musicians. Then Dr. Heather Nelson is talking about dry mouth, what it is, why it happens, and what we can do about it. And we're finishing up with Angela Winter, our website expert, and she is talking about the three things you need to have before you get started on that website. Three amazing guests, three timely topics right here on the Full Voice Podcast. Hello, thank you, and welcome. Welcome to the Full Voice Podcast. Thank you for pressing play. Thank you for putting your earbuds in and going for a walk or... I like to I like to actually clean my kitchen when I listen to podcasts. I'm no longer allowed to listen to scary podcasts because I have horrible dreams and I talk in my sleep apparently. I used to listen to um The Astonishing Legends and a lot of the spooky creepy podcasts. And uh if I do too many of those, I I my poor husband wakes up to some uh <laughs> some yelling and shouting. Apparently, I, I don't know. It might not be true. Anyhow, um, I'm glad you're here. I'm, I have three amazing conversations for you and, um, I'm just, I'm excited to get started. But before I do, I want to let everybody know that if you are listening to this podcast at time of of release, uh, the national convention, the 2022 Chicago Nats convention is less than a month away. I am so excited. I cannot wait to see my friends, to hug them in person. It's been far too long. I'm so excited to meet people, to talk to people. I'm super excited to be presenting about my favorite topic, which is play-based learning and vocal exploration with children. And I'm I'm joined on the stage with Dr. Geneva Williams, who is just brilliant, and my good friend, podcast guest, uh, Dana Lentini, is also joining me. It's going to be amazing. Um, and I wanted to let people know if traveling to Chicago and being in person is not where you are at uh, for any reason, you are able to purchase the national convention and watch it online. Um, and this the the recordings will be available, I do believe, up to six months. So if you're like me and you love learning in your pajamas. I highly recommend that. Uh, there's just so many incredible presentations, so many people that uh, are just doing wonderful things in our industry that are sharing their expertise. Please check that out. Go to nats.org. It is not too late to purchase uh, the uh, the online option. And for those of you who are going and are going to be there in person, you must come and visit me at the Full Voice booth. I am going to be there. I'm going to be recording podcasts. 
podcast. I'm going to be talking to people. I'm going to be sharing our new release, Songs and Studies for Kids Introductory A book. It is so fabulous. Um, and I'm going to be there. I can't wait to I can't wait to see people. I can't wait to hug people. And I, I hope my listeners, some of you will come and say hello. Now, uh, before I uh, I get uh, I in, I get Jessica onto the show. I just wanted to preface it uh, quickly. Um, there's so many changes and so many new things that we are considering when we are serving our our singers, our young musicians. And I do appreciate uh, our expert Jessica Baldwin, who is a popular music specialist. She's been on the podcast several times. If you haven't heard the podcasts with her, I highly recommend her interviews. They are inspiring. They are healing. They are so helpful. And um, I'm just thrilled that she could come back. Today, we're talking about the changes that need to happen in music education so that our students can truly find their authentic path, their journey, their musical expertise. And she's got some really great strategies. So without further ado, Miss Jessica Baldwin. Welcome back to the Full Voice Podcast, my friend, my colleague, Jessica Baldwin. It is always so wonderful to talk to you, to see you. How are you? I am so great. Thank you for asking. How are you doing? I'm good. You, you're so always so sweet and you always ask me. Thank you for asking. I'm doing wonder. I'm, I have... I'm living the dream. I get to talk to all my friends and colleagues and I get to have wonderful conversations and I get to take all of this amazing information back and into my studio, into my business, into my teaching. And I'm just, I feel sometimes that I'm just too lucky. Like life is just. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. So today uh, you always bring in some really fantastic conversations. We've been talking about uh, so many wonderful things about helping our ourselves uh, find our our true artistic voices, helping our students, holding space for students that are singing musics that we did not study, that maybe we aren't experts in, and so many wonderful, wonderful talk topics about, I, I'm generalizing here, about moving away from the traditional ways that we were taught and that that master apprentice approach. And that's one thing I always try to tell um, teachers that I'm helping when they want to learn more about working with children is that the master apprentice approach is not conducive to creating a space where a child will thrive. Hmm. And it's hard because we've gro- we've gone through these master apprentice types of, of training and it's it's ingrained in us. Yeah. So today we're talking about how can we change music education? How can we ap- appreciate where we came from? And then where do we need to move to really, truly help students of today? Yeah. Yeah. So, so if we came through the educational pipeline, um, music education pipeline, we were probably corralled into particular paths based on what was available at school. 
And what authority figures told us was best for us based on their own beliefs about quote-unquote good music and quote-unquote good singers. And it's extremely rare that young people are coached by a neutral party about their individual creative path as they go through this pipeline. And this situation is made tougher by the fact that most of what we do in the educational pipeline is composer-focused. We are almost always a vessel, uh, an interpreter, but not a creator. And we rarely get to pick what we're a vessel for. It's usually being picked by someone else, right? Director, teacher. And I'm not saying any of this is bad necessarily. This is a way that you can do music. And many people find great fulfillment in these kinds of music making. But it has its limitations, especially in relation to popular musics. And lots and lots of kids are directed, corralled down paths that they later regret. And they come to people like me to help them figure out what to do about the fact that that was their experience. And that if someone had just listened and, and asked and given them some other options, right? There's lots of, there's a lot in that web that gets kind of tangled up with them. Um, I have people who've gone all the way through doctoral programs before they figured out that they went down a path for a long time before really stopping to think about any other options. I mean, it really is amazing how far we can go. <laughs> well, and, and if you think about how higher education works, like you get more and more defined as you get into the higher degrees, like, you know, your bachelor's is very general, then you get a little more specialized. And then when you go, you're going for your DMA or, or a PhD, you're getting so hyper-focused and to discover that you've been funneled into something that's not your heart's work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, and we'll talk about this in another episode, I think, but um, there's, there are some reasons why we make those choices, um, why we're, we struggle to even know how to recognize what our heart's desire is until we're well into adulthood. That can be tough. You know, and even when I've coached young people outside of school in private lessons, you know, they, and here I am trying to be a coach who's saying, you know, let's figure out together what you want, who you want to be. You obviously have a passion and are quite good at this music and this music and let's work on this together. Um, let me connect you to some people who can help you with that. They still feel so much pressure to impress the music authority figures at their school and to impress their peers in those music programs. Um, you know, the sense of belonging that these young people feel in their music programs is such a real thing. I mean, if they, if that's where they feel the most seen in relation to everything else that they do, 
of course they want to invest in that and they want to be seen in the ways that feel good to them in that setting. But if the music itself is not serving them, the social situation is, but the music itself may not be serving them long-term, right? They'll continue to be very, very invested in that situation and not be able to separate the social benefits from the potentially damaging things that are happening to them as young musicians. If their ways of doing music are not being affirmed um, in the ways that they need it to be affirmed. Um, And ironically, the biggest reason my most talented students can't pursue their creative dreams is choir practice and after school, all state practices and solo and ensemble preparations and the things that we typically do to achieve in our traditional music education pipeline situations. So these kids that absolutely would be fantastic in popular musics, and here I am trying to help them do it. They can't because they're they're so deeply tied into the investments they've made in their school pipeline stuff. And it's it's really hard to to battle that. Um, and you know, these there's some trauma cycles that can be fed into where kids are trying to be the good kid, the achiever kid, um, filling the role that the adults have been asking them to fill, um, or that they believe that adult approved achievement or perfection is what makes them lovable or worthy. And they continue to, to invest in this stuff because of those things that are going on with them. There's no room for messiness or mistakes or experimentation or finding yourself. And, you know, the the fiercely independent and sometimes rebellious kids who don't fit well in school music groups are often ahead of the game in terms of popular music and being an original artist. Um, It's the kids who drive the choir director crazy, (laughs) who have a lot of the ingredients for being, you know, for, yeah, just getting a little ahead of game in, in terms of this popular music stuff. And unfortunately, the traditional music ed experiences don't usually build self-generation skills because someone else is always in charge. Someone else is always saying what to do next, how to do it. So these young minds in terms of music are not able to build the ability to say, what do I want to do? What I want that to look like? How can I go there next? How can I teach myself about that? And, you know, I get it. I get why directors do things the way they do. I was a choir director's kid. Like I, <laughs> I saw firsthand what it's like to run a choir and to try to balance, you know, running a program versus helping individual students. It's not, it's not an easy thing to do. So here's some things I, I suggest. If you're in music education, um, if you're in private lessons and you're trying to figure out how to support your students, here, here's some things to consider. Number one, start learning about popular music education. It is a huge field. It's been around for decades. And uh, in terms of research, it's a huge field. Um, Popular music studies is a particular field that's been around a long time. That's why I use that term because it's already been around forever. (laughs) That's what it means. So there's an association for popular music education that I recommend, textbooks around that. Please go join that community. The first time I went to APME, and started going to the workshops um, and talks by people who are already doing popular music-focused kinds of things in their classrooms, the amount of creation 
and student-led learning that was happening was astounding. Like the number of songs that these kids write, like making their own beats, using Soundtrap to do stuff together, sending each other songs, making up words. Like it, it's just amazing how much they're capable of doing on their own in those settings. And there are people doing that. And please, please learn from them. And trying to keep in mind the long-term needs of our young musicians is so important. So, so here's some don'ts. Stop asking them to sell out to make your studio or your program look good or to fill your roster. Stop putting moral values on different music opportunities, which makes them afraid of disappointing you if they pursue a different path. Stop making them feel like excelling in a school program or in your studio is the best way to be a musician. And stop automatically pushing all of your most talented kids into classical music programs, even if they're really great at it. So many of them come to people like me after college and wish they'd had opportunities in other kinds of music. We need to not rush to that conclusion that that's automatically where they're supposed to be. So here's some things to do instead. Do everything you can to guide them to their most authentic music path. They are the reason you are there. They are the reason we need to make the choices we're making in our studios. We have to set our egos aside for them. Keep a list of teachers and mentors in the community who can work with different of young musicians in different ways so that you can refer out to those people. Be ready and willing to give up your star singer or the lead for the musical so that they can pursue music opportunities where they truly shine. Our best kiddos are good at a lot of things, but we don't own them, right? We really have to keep them first. And consider different kinds of awards and achievements and or recognitions or programs for different kinds of music experiences, not just the ones that are common in your program. You know, maybe give like a best songwriting award for a kid who wrote their own song outside of school or a best collaboration or a best beat making or a best, right? So even if that's not necessarily what you're doing, it at least invites those students to share the other stuff that they're doing outside of your choir room, maybe, um, and for you to recognize that so that they know that you think that other stuff is great and that you are rewarding it, even if that's not necessarily what you're doing in your classroom. And let your musicians know that you are able to offer just a very small part of the music world in your room. Again, it's kind of that like classical music, we can think it's so huge when it's really quite small. It, the more you can admit to your students that it's small, what you're doing is small, that you can only do so much. And then it will help them be okay with the fact that if they're doing other things, they're not deserting the most important thing. They're just choosing something else from a huge, huge, huge world of music. And let them know that you love it when they do those other things. Um, so, you know, I get a lot of what makes music education hard. It's so hard. <laughs> I'm amazed that anyone goes into it. I will admit it. 
But I work with so many voice teachers who went through the pipeline and there was just something missing and they are now struggling to figure out who the heck they are. So there's still some things we need to learn about how to serve our young musicians to have them doing something that's not about setting the self aside to serve a larger program, to serve a choir, to serve the director's vision, right? That they get opportunities to have their own visions and to pursue their own paths as well. Because once they finish college, that's the majority of the music opportunities they're going to have are their own self-generated music opportunities, whatever those are going to be, probably bands, you know, in their area, not choirs, not operas. Those are more rare experiences. Mm -hmm. I have a question for you. What would you, or how do you handle, what would you recommend when you have a student who's maybe being pushed by parents into this type of opportunity and you see that that there's a struggle i will talk to the parents okay first all right and just let them know that it's not necessary for them to push the student in this direction that and try to have a talk about why they feel like that's necessary mhm what is it that they think is beneficial for the child mm -hmm. in terms of pursuing that path? Mm -hmm. And often in that discussion, we can, I can address some of those concerns that they might have if the student doesn't go that way and let them know that there are other options, let them know some of the realities of that path. Um, Unfortunately, we've got some misconceptions that that path is somehow safer mm. or will lead to more success or makes you a better, more respectable musician. I mean, the, who knows where mm -hmm. that belief that that's the path they should go down is coming from. But having a conversation with the parents, um, not in an accusatory way, just in an exploratory way to try to let them know that there are other options and that they can go different directions. Um, and then also to talk to the student. Um, and, you know, by the time they're in high school, I'm going to have a separate conversation with them as well. Um, you know, when you have parents that are particularly pushy, sometimes you really do have to talk to the child separately because they will give very different answers when the parents are around um, because they feel like they have to have to please the parents or, you know, so having that discussion with the, with the child also to sort of see where they are and how they feel about it um, and where they want to go and let them know what the options are. But that's, you know, that's also a situation where, man, we can be deep in some, we can be deep in some dysfunctional stuff that us as a voice teacher, like we're not going to be able to unravel all that. We can just do our best to, hear concerns, to be empathetic, and to share information so that they can maybe make a different choice. I have another question for you. And I am playing devil's advocate here. <laughs> there are a lot of teachers whose voice studios 
uh, are defined by like classical voice exam. And that and that's very much a big part of studio culture, especially here mm-hmm. in Canada, right? We have the Royal Conservatory, but I know that there's examination programs mm-hmm. in Australia and there's examination programs, uh, I think Trinity College is in the UK. So for a teacher that is building a studio and the exams are a big deal and they're starting to maybe think that there's other options... What what would you, how would you, I don't know, what would you say? I did those exams. Um, and I think that that is a fantastic system for students when you are, when they're getting a sense that that's really where they want to go. I've also used it with younger kiddos. I, I like the goal-orientedness of some of the different tasks that they have to do. It's a motivating factor for some of them to have that. Um, there are popular music versions of this also, by the way, for people who just need a goal-oriented something for the students who are motivated by that. Um, and I... I'm not saying that a teacher even has to do anything differently in terms of being all in with the classical approach. If that's really where you want to live, please be all in with the classical approach while you also educate the student about other options, while you also let them know that, hey, if you love this kind of music, this teacher here, does that kind of music, I think it would be a great idea for you to go do some of that and explore that for yourself um, and see whether you love it, how you feel about it. I mean, you know, there are, NYU, for instance, does this. Like, you don't declare a genre major for two years. You sing in multiple genres, and then you declare one. Right, yeah. So, and that's at the college level, (laughs) right? Yeah, um, which really is still quite young in terms of a human life, right? So if you wanna if you wanna be the classical teacher, please be the classical teacher. Do it, do it well. My dream, honestly, is that we're gonna have teachers in all sorts of different genres who know what they do well and we can refer out to each other and be like, oh, you wanna do indie rock? Go to blah 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 and blah 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 and blah blah blah. Oh, you wanna do um soul neo soul go to so and so and so and so and so and so right so i think we still need people who are really fantastic at different genres to send people to so please be that person and just keep checking yourself in terms of how you're talking about it how you're talking about that genre how you are continuing to let the child be open to different options um if they are particularly if they are the kind of kid that just wants to make the grown-ups happy because they will be doing that for you. And if you sense any of that, please, as quickly as possible, keep using language that lets the kids know that what they are doing is not for you. It is for them and that you will be most happy when they are doing what is best for them, which may be classical music and maybe something else altogether. And you are here to help that them find so what helpful. that is. And how much, 
how much pain and suffering that teachers talk about, you know, they're not practicing, they're not practicing comes to the fact that we haven't allowed them to explore something that they're actually interested in to begin with. And it may not be music at all in the long run. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Like their creative avenue may be drawing or (laughs) who knows? There's just so much stuff they can explore. But yeah, if they're not practicing, if they really don't dig it, I don't know. Sometimes they come back later. But grownups do the same thing. It's not just kids. We grownups do the same thing. We will not work on things, even things we think we want to work on. Because it's not the right time. Because we're not ready. Because we have a block. And when we're ready, we come back. But, you know trying to force practice on something that's just really not delighting you at the moment. I don't care how old you are. (laughs) That is not, (laughs) that does not work for most people. Jessica, thank you so much. You bring such important ideas and a change in approach and it is so needed in our industry and it's so helpful. And I know, I know you have dropped some rather major truth bombs on many of us. I know I always come back and I, I think about how I can serve my students in a more holistic and student focused way after I talk to you. So thank you. We will have you back and I am, I am wishing you a fabulous day. Thank you. You too, Nikki. Vocologist Dr. Heather Nelson is a regular expert on our podcast. It's so fabulous to have her back today. Our topic is about dry mouth. Welcome back to the podcast, my friend, my colleague, Dr. Heather Nelson. How are you? I'm so good. It's so glad. I'm so glad to be back with you. Oh, I love our segments. Uh, They're so informative. There's always something that I can take back like immediately to my studio, to my students, to my teaching. And I'm forever grateful. Um, If one thing this podcast has done is, and one, I have expanded my friends worldwide, but also I've leveled up because I take everything you guys say right back to my students. So, right. I mean, that's what teaching all, all about, right? Stealing mm-hmm. ideas from smarter people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, I we have a very um uh romantic topic today. Mm-hmm. We are we're talking about dry mouth cuz that is dry mouth. something yes. that happens. And um you know, it's something I've never really uh I've never really done any research on. So, let's let's get into the Good stuff, question mark. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not it's not the most um, uh, fun topic, but, you know, everybody has experienced it at some point or another. Um, It's very, very common. Um, It happens a lot when we get nervous because one of the uh, side effects of adrenaline is is dry mouth. And so it's a part of our fight, flight or freeze response. Um, and certainly we know a lot about that, you know, as when we get performers, you know, when we get to performing, most of us get nervous when we perform at some point. And so dry mouth can be a part of that. Um, it can also be a pretty severe medical condition. It It is not necessarily a disease in and of itself, but it is a symptom of several different kinds of diseases um, or side effects to medication that can be actually really debilitating. Um, The proper term for it is xerostomia, 
And so if you, um, if you Google it, it's, uh, it starts with an X. So X E R O stomia, you can Google it. And there's some really good information on the Mayo Clinic website. I love their, their website because they have all kinds of really accessible, um, information. Um, but also there's some good information on the American Dental Association website about it because, um, severe and chronic, um, dry mouth can lead to tooth decay. And so it's, it's a, an issue that if, if it affects your life, you definitely want to try to find ways to get around it. And we can talk a little bit about that, but mostly we want to help ourselves and our kiddos and our adult singers to be able to manage it when it happens occasionally, usually when we get nervous. Mm-hmm. So we produce saliva in our mouths from glands that are in our mouths and those glands are, um, they get nerve instruction from the brain from one of our cranial nerves called the trigeminal nerve. The trigeminal has three big branches. That's why it says, you know, why it's named the tri. <laughs> and one of those branches goes up underneath the, t- the tongue and, and it tells our, tells our glands to, hey, make saliva right now. And that happens when we eat. It happens... Um, you know, when we need to um, swallow things or when we're chewing things or just to keep our mouth nice and, and lubricated and keep everything in there kind of um, wet and happy. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> keeping, our, keeping our tongues lubricated. Um, we also have had some research that has shown that uh, dry mouth can affect vocal function. And um, while the research that I read didn't really test for like acoustical measures of voice, they did uh, find that most people felt like it took more effort to sing um, to, or speak. And, and vocal effort or the, the perception of vocal effort is still a, a marker for vocal function because, I mean, we can all imagine, you know, when, we have, when, when it is felt difficult to sing or felt difficult to speak, to speak. Um, we just don't do it as well. Um, and so there's probably something, you know, going on at the vocal fold level too, even if it's mostly, you know, if it's starting in our minds from being nervous about it. Um, but that feeling of effort can really be a, a hindrance to us singing well when we need to. So when we experience dry mouth, there's a couple of things that we can do. One is just to sip water. I would I would recommend sipping and not drinking a lot, so that you're taking smaller sips. When we when we when we take big drinks, they tend to go you know straight down the gullet, <laughs> and they don't they don't spend a lot of time in your mouth really. But when you take little little sips, they can uh, it stays in your mouth a little bit more, and you could even sip small enough that you don't actually swallow it. It just kind of hangs out there and um, and lubricates everything. You can chew gum, which I don't recommend during a performance, but maybe right before. <laughs> um, I had I would not do this with little kids, but with the right age um, and and, um, and appropriateness and practicing ahead of time. I wouldn't do this like just right, you know, walking out on stage, but taking just a teeny tiny little piece of gum and sticking it like in between your gum and your your cheek can sometimes kind of stimulate those, those glands to start working. You're not chewing it and it's not big enough to like, you're, you're, you're not going to like walk out on stage looking like you've got a big, you know, wada of chew in your, in your lip. 
um, you know, just enough to kind of irritate the skin a little bit so that it, um, or so that you can taste it a little bit so that the, the, the saliva um, glands will start to work again. There are some medications or some mouthwashes that you can get over the counter. Um, Biotene is one. Um, uh, there's some fancy um, chemicals that you want to look for. Um, xylitol or hydroxyethylcellulose. I had to look at that while I was saying that. <laughs> I didn't want to <laughs> say them wrong. I was going to rat. I wasn't going to rat you out, but <laughs> <laughs> I was like, let's just let, let's just admit that my brain is not that good at remembering those types of words. <laughs> and so, um, so if you look at mouthwashes that have those in them, those are supposed to stimulate the the saliva glands to work as well. And of course, if it is a response from your nervous system and your anxiety is debilitating, you can also, you know, talk to a therapist or a counselor who might be able to give you some strategies to work on um, your body's fight, flight, or freeze response that might um, help that adrenaline to get tamped down. That's really interesting because, you know, we, we often think about a lot of our kiddos, like if you're working with a lot of kids, so some children, the fight or flight is just switched off and on like all the time. And it doesn't really take much to, to for the fight or flight to switch and, and for things to, for them to be affected. Um, but I never really thought about dry mouth as, as one of those side effects, but as you're talking, I'm thinking about one student in particular that they they very anxious young person and and their their confidence is building. But I'm I'm wondering if some of their hoarseness could be a result of that. I, and not that I would diagnose it, but it's just something for me to keep in the back of my mind. As you know, would you like to take a sip of water or? And I, I mean, I always encourage my singers in the studio to to bring water and to sip water through the lesson. Um, and if sometimes if we're doing straw work in a cup of water, like it'll, I'll say, okay, now take a little sip, right? <laughs> so um, that's really helpful and interesting. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, dry mouth. I mean, it, it's it's a natural thing that our body does in response to something, um, you know. And if there's um, uh, I mentioned earlier, you know, some, some types of medications, you know, can, can cause dry mouth as, as a, you know, a side effect of, of what they're, you know, what the medication is doing. And if you need the medication, then you've got to mitigate the, the side effect. Um, um, dry mouth is a pretty serious and very common medication or side effect for a lot of chemotherapy medications. And of course, we're not going to tell our singers, you can't have chemotherapy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, of course not. we're going to, we're going to figure out how to get around the dry mouth. And, you know, this may be another instance where we need to be collaborative with their doctors, with an SLP or, um, or even sometimes a respiratory therapist can be helpful with, with some of those kinds of things. Cause sometimes, um, um, adrenaline responses can be, um, can be helped with some, some kinds of breathing things. Um, and so if we are, if we're working with, with the team, you know, we can find ways to get ar around it as much as possible. Uh, you know, and just, you know, letting our students know too, like, okay, this is the way that your body is responding here. You're not doing anything wrong. Here are some things that we can do to try to help that until, you know, your body either learns that you're really not in danger right now or, um, 
you know, if, if that's just the way your body's going to respond. I mean, I've been performing for 30 plus years and I still get nervous, but you know, I, even though I know I'm probably not going to (laughs) die, you know, um, but I, I have ways that I can help myself to manage those side effects of, of the nervousness and just assuring clients that, you know, you're not doing anything wrong. Nerves are, are really normal. Um, they mean that you care and that's really an awesome thing. (laughs) And so, um, here's how we can help these side effects, um, not be so debilitating. What about like a lozenge? Are those recommended or was that too drying? It depends on what's in the lozenge. Um, You definitely want to steer clear of anything that has menthol in it because menthol, um, it's a painkiller, which is wonderful when you have a sore throat, but it can give us a false sense of security. Um, Like if you're, um, if you have a sore throat and you take a menthol lozenge, oh, my throat feels better. So I will sing right now. (laughs) You know, you may actually still have like the swelling and stuff. Um, A lot of lozenges are um, um, really, essentially, they're just hard candy packaged in, you know, in a a medicinal looking, looking Mm. bag. (laughs) They can have a lot of sugar in them. Mm -hmm. And um, sugar, especially um, when uh, one side effect of... um, of chronic dry mouth can be, um, can be thrush, which is a yeast infection right. in the mouth. And this, this is when it gets kind of serious, but sugar feeds yeast. Oh, so, you, sure. you, you know, you don't want to do that so much. I mean, right. let's be honest, sugar tastes delicious. It's wonderful. <laughs> um, it helps my soul in many, many ways, but it may not <laughs> be the best the thing best for dry thing. mouth. Sure. Um, Heather, this is, this is, as always, your information is so spot on and so helpful. And um, the details really can help all teachers out there working with all ages. I want to thank you so much for being our one of our returning expert guests and sharing all of your amazing stuff. How can uh, the our uh, listeners find and uh, follow you? Sure. You can go to my website. It's drheathernelson.com. Um, I'm on Instagram at drheathernelson. And um, there's a link in my bio there that you can get to um, resources uh, for your teaching studio on all kinds of sciencey information and also signing up for my email list. Um, I blog every week, just about, <laughs> and, um, and send an email just about every week. And the people who are on my email list get a little something extra, a little extra detail Ooh. or a little extra idea that I don't put on my socials and I don't put on the blog. So so go and sign up for Heather's newsletter right now. And I, yes, I promise I won't spam you because I really don't know how. And so you'll, <laughs> you'll get one, maybe two emails a week. And that's pretty much it. I love it. I love it. Heather, you're fantastic. Thank you so much for all you do. Absolutely. On our last episode, I uh, had the pleasure of introducing Angela Winter. Not only is Angela a voice professional, but Angela's passion and superpower is website 
design. Now we were talking a little bit about website design and how Angela got started and and some of the challenges when creating websites, but uh, this interview gets a little more specific and Angela is helping us to get organized and to get the three things that we need to have in place before we get started in designing our website. Welcome back to the Full Voice Podcast, my website expert friend and colleague, Angela Winter. How are you? I'm so good, Nikki. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, websites are an essential. There's no more debate about that. (laughs) And you have such a profound approach to working with your clients and building websites. And for my listeners, if you haven't checked out Angela's websites, I truly feel that they are beautiful works of art. They just, they, and I think I have, I think I have an advantage because many of the, uh, many of the websites you've done, I know the, I know the teacher. So I, I you represent them so beautifully and I can see that you like, it's just so it's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I wanted to ask you as a website expert, um, for, for people out there who might be taking care of their own website and many, many teachers do, uh, or a teacher that maybe, uh, is going to work with somebody, hopefully you, (laughs) (laughs) what are things that people need to bring to the table to get started? What do they need before they start putting their website together? Yeah. Um, so there are kind of four main components that we need to have an understanding of um, to create a brand, to create a website. And branding and website don't always have to go together. I do want to be clear about that. My personal process um, weaves both of them together because it's the most fun for me and I believe achieves the greatest results. Um, But that is not everybody's philosophy and not everybody's process. Um, So I want to clarify on that point. Um, but there are kind of four main areas, and we touched on them um, in our previous interview, but we need to have a sense of who the provider is, who the business owner is, um, you know, whether that is all of the teachers in a multi-teacher studio or the, the primary business owner um, in a solopreneurship, um, whatever it is, we want to have a clear sense of who is, who is doing the work and who is creating the vision for the business. Um, We need to have a clear sense of who the business is serving, the ideal clients, um, the general, I guess, area or niche that the business fills, um, where those two intersect, right? Where where the values of both um, and the desires really of both can overlap. Um, And then it is the overall kind of work with you process, right? What is your onboarding? What are your packages? Um, So that we can create a pathway, right? That's kind of the whole point of the website, not to just say, here I am, but say, here I am and come in. Um, Oh, that's important. uh, Right? Mm. So I often think about a website as it's your online home. Right, so we want the the homepage to really feel like your foyer. You know, you open the door and you can kind of get a sense of all the rooms in your house. But then you want to invite them in and say, "Here's a little bit more about me, and here is where you might do, 
you know, here's where you might work with me. And here's how. And here's how you can come sit at my kitchen table and we can get to know each other and we can create magic. Um, is that, that's the call to action, right? That's the, that is the call to action. Exactly. That was, that was one of the big mistakes I made in my very early days of doing any marketing, even like social media posts, right? It was the, here's my stuff. And then there was no, well, and how do we get in touch with you and your stuff? So <laughs> you, um, that, that's challenging, right? It's, it's also putting your hand out and asking for the, the, the it commitment. Is. It is. And it's really important because ultimately people like to be told what to do, right? In this day of overconsumption and over-information, like we're all suffering from decision fatigue and we, you know, we might see something we like, but I, I, how do I know it's right? What do I do with it? Right. Um, so having a clear call to action is probably one of the most, if not the most important things you can do right up front and center, make it really easy for people to understand how to work with you. Mm. That's so important too, because there's different it depends on the teacher, but there's different ways. Like, do you do a discovery call? Do you have an intake form? Do they have to schedule? Like, they, you really have to take them through the steps because everybody is different. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I, <laughs> I was lucky for a long time when I was in, in Hamilton. I mean, a lot of my uh, students came from word of mouth because I lived in such a child dense area of the city and my son was going to elementary school. But that's one of the things that changed when I went online is I had to really think about how I was going to get that client or the potential client to take that next step and reach out. And I got a lot of really weird, uncomfortable emails for a while. And then I realized, I'm like, I really don't have a system for welcoming them and, and onboarding. And I like the term that you used, on, onboarding. Yeah, bringing, bringing them into your world. And, and as you said, that can look like a lot of different things. Um, but I would say that those are kind of the critical pieces to at least have an understanding of, right? That doesn't mean that you need to have all of your systems and processes already ready to go. That can be built alongside, um, but it's helpful to have an understanding of what systems you want to use um, and how you want to bring people into your world and bring them through your offerings. I like I like how you said the foyer, like come into my house and this is this yeah. is here. I, that is a really good visual. Um I wanted to I wanted to ask um if you have a client who uh is maybe hasn't set up these these systems, let's call them systems, right? Uh, do you help them? Like, do you help work with them about like, okay, when they come to your website, you want them to do A, B, and C. Do you have any like tips for teachers that are like, okay, I, I don't, I'm not sure how to direct people. Yeah. Um, so yes, I can absolutely help them. Um, sometimes that help is, you know, just putting in widgets uh, to, to the website, but sometimes it is helping them get set up with a scheduling system such as Acuity, um, which is now Squarespace Scheduling, um, or 
I have helped with uh, MailChimp as well. Usually I'm not doing the back end of the system so much, um, though I can certainly recommend and refer uh, what systems might work because I've been exposed to quite a few now with my work. Um, but I would say the, the way to figure out your system is to really think about how you prefer to be in touch with your people. Um, so, for example, I've had some clients where the first step they really want is just a simple email, um, you know, so it's simply contact to start the process rolling. Right. For other people, um, they want to not have to have a bunch of back and forth with potential clients and not have, you know, a bunch of emails and questions coming through, but to simply set up face-to-face. -face. This is also my personal process. Um, so if I do get an email, it's great. Please sign up for a consultation at this link. Um, you know, and so that's something we can put in uh, a button on a website as well, is a link to schedule that consultation call or that initial fit lesson, right? That initial lesson that you're trying it out with each other. Both of any, any of those three options, I would say, are really good choices for um, music teachers, voice teachers to consider. Oh, that's so helpful. That's so helpful. And I love what you say about, you know, we really want to think this through because we're, we're essentially building systems so that we're avoiding the extra work that, especially that you could not, you know, maybe it's unpaid time of the going back and forth and the emails. I, I, I get a little, I get a little irritated when I have to have four or five emails back and forth with someone. Um, that's so helpful. Uh, what other, what other strategies, what other things do people need to bring to the table if they're getting started or if they're looking to redo or refresh, what other things do they need? Yeah. Um, well, I, the, one of the biggest things is the copy. Um, so copy, for those who might not know, is just the terminology for the writing that goes on your website. Um, so I do have, um, my personal process does include prompts and workbooks that can help people arrive at this, but I'm not a copywriter. And so I am not kind of overseeing that process, if you will. Um, but the more the more understanding you have of your unique messaging, um, in, in business terms, we might call it your unique value proposition, um, but it's essentially um, who you serve and how you serve them, um, and especially how you help them, right, in a way that creates a differentiation between you and the teacher down the street. Um, you have something that is unique to you that you bring to your students. And we want to really highlight that. From In my world, this is your magic. What is your magic and who are the people who most need it or who most benefit from it? Um, and that's, that's really kind of the key understanding that is really helpful to have. I want to thank you for bringing that up because I think many of us have learned through trial and much error that <laughs> casting of the wide net doesn't serve you or the people that come to you. And, and at, you know, one point, you know, people were thinking, well, you'll see on websites sometimes, you know, serving all ages and teaching all styles. And that might've seemed like an asset, but now we know better that the more we can niche and define who we really love to work with is so important. 
Um, Absolutely. Especially yeah. in, in moving into the online business world, you know, it's, it's a very different world than, you know, when you're getting word of mouth from neighborhood schools or teachers and, and those things are, are still valuable, right? Those referrals are still huge, huge, huge business builders. Uh, my own business, even though it is online, is still predominantly um, word of mouth and referrals. So I don't knock that at all. But as, when we want to create greater visibility or when we want to move outside of our neighborhood or build, um, you know, we need remote work opportunities, whether because we want to travel or because the pandemic has forced it on upon us, um, we need to get really specific. And this can be really, really scary. I have I have faced the fears myself, right? Because there's it's so easy to believe that if we get really specific on one kind of client or perhaps two or three different kinds of clients, that there aren't going to be enough. Right? We get we get stuck into in scarcity. Um, but what I find happens is when you can get really specific, you are actually doing so because you are connecting with your passion, because you are connecting with what lights you up. It is not to say that you don't have the skills to teach a huge variety of ages or a huge variety of genres, because as musicians, right, we, we have to, right? We cultivate all of those skills for ourselves and for our students, um, sometimes against our own desires. We, <laughs> sure, we yeah. need to expand our, our learning and our, our capabilities. Um, but ultimately, the people we can best serve are the people who light us up, because those are the people who are going to feel like freedom when we're working with them, right? As opposed to a massive headache. And when we can show up in joy and love and passion with our people, they're going to feel that too. Um, and so the more you can tap into, okay, yes, I can work with these people and these people and these people, and I've had success here and here and here, but what do I love? And then speak to that, right? Speak to those people, speak to that offering, um, because the passion and the energy in that message is actually going to carry beyond those people. And it will touch on other people and other clients who also need you, even if they don't fully resonate with the whole message, the passion and the energy will. Oh, that is so beautiful and so helpful. Thank you for, for just taking the time to go through that. Um, one of the things that I think happens and it happened to me and I wanted to share this with you is because my studio was very much word of mouth and because, you know, I didn't have to really do a lot of marketing. Um, there were a few times over my career where, uh, you know, you make the change, you know, maybe I'm, you know, you, I moved from this studio to that studio. And it's when you make those changes that you realize that you have horribly neglected and you, you look like, I remember looking at my website, my teaching website. And I was like, these are like from two years ago. This is all my prices from two years ago. This is all my, oh, and, and then you have this panic attack and then you realize you're going to do a big update. Um, so I love what you're saying about really getting to know you and, and having that core messaging because that will stand the test of time. Even if you're, even if your offers change, they still kind of know what you're about. Right. 
Right. Yeah. So when I was in uh, coach training, we would often talk about, you know, helping people get back to their nature, right? As opposed to all of the, the social conditioning that is piled upon us through a lifetime, getting back to that core nature. And that is often in place at a very young age, barring adverse childhood experiences and trauma, um, which is absolutely a real thing. But when when we're not have, struggling with that as children, that core essence is in place. Um, and you may have seen it in your children. I've certainly seen it in my children, you know, between five and 10. And that it never completely changes. You know, like I can look back in my own life and be like, oh yeah, like at 12, uh, yeah, same kind of people in my world, same kind of interests. And so, yes, I mean, to just to further that point, like, yeah, it's not going to change dramatically. How we show up in the world and how we communicate may change. And how, you know, the choices that we make to bring our essence into the world will change. Um, but that, that core generally does not. Hmm. That is so, that is so beautiful. I, I love that. I love that. Do you find, do you find that some people try to put up a professional wall that disconnects them? Very much so. Very much so. Um, Not so much with my people, because the people that I choose to work with and and that often find me and that resonate with me um, are, I would say, on a a little deeper path, um, or they're eager to move beyond that. Um, But yeah, it's so easy. And I think especially in the vocal performance world, and even more so if you've come up through classical academia, um, but there is such a tendency, or at least, you know, speaking speaking personally, um, you know, there was such a tendency to be the persona, oh, right? Sure. Of putting, putting on the right dress or singing the right repertoire or doing your hair just right or wearing just the right shoes, right? There were just, there were rules for everything. And, you know, we see how studios are run within a college environment. And then we try to replicate the same thing when we walk out the door, even though we've been given absolutely no training or information about how to do that, which is a whole nother topic. Um, but yeah, there's absolutely a, a tendency, I think, to at least want to have that kind of professional front. Um, sterile is how I would how I would think about it, right? Um, and and this would have worked ten years ago. Um, it did work ten years ago, uh, twenty years ago, absolutely, right? If if you had a website at all twenty years ago, I mean, like amazing, amazing to you. Um, <laughs> But what we're seeing now um, and with the millennial generation coming up and with all of the empowerment movements that are around and and awakening in general in the world is that it doesn't work anymore and it doesn't sell because people want to know you. And that doesn't mean they need to know everything about you. Um, Michelle Marquardt DeVoe, the leader of the Speakeasy Cooperative, and I were talking just earlier this week about um, vulnerability porn, right? About this this, uh, environment that is often around, especially in social media, of like feeling this need to tell everybody that you cried over your son's breakfast cereal this morning, you know, in order to seem human, in order to attract clients. And no. I, I would say we don't need to go there, but there is the need to 
show up as fully yourself and not as the as the aspect that you believe others want to see. Oh, um, very well put. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and I talk about this, I actually have a blog post um, about is your website codependent? And, and I think it's something that kind of speaks to this idea, right? And this, this kind of professional image in a way is a codependency because it is first assuming what others want and then two projecting and making yourself over into who you think they want you to be right and in that process we lose you yeah right and Mm. people especially um you know when we're when we're music teachers when we're voice teachers i mean i hate to break it to you but like they're everywhere right like you walk down the street, you might find three or four different music teachers. And so what is going to separate you, right? What is going to differentiate you and create those raving fans that lead to a full studio? And it is not necessarily having the greatest, most illustrious performing career or degrees or, you know, having the latest and greatest technology in your studio, not to say any of those things aren't important and that your people aren't looking for those things because I know many teachers, like those are their ideal clients. But it's not always that, right? And I think we can experience so much shame um, around a career or a lack of career or understanding of different deep dive pedagogy kind of topics. And in reality, what your people might be looking for is your kind and open heart, or it might be the way you love to love them, right? Whether it's having having treats for them or letting them pick their own music. I mean, it could be any number of things, but, but really your people want you. And so if you have that illustrious career, your people are going to be amazed by that. But if you don't, I guarantee you, you have something else that your people are going to absolutely rave about you and treasure you for. Oh, Angela, that is so helpful and it's beautiful. And I hope for my listeners that it is inspirational to allow them to really show up and, and, and create a website that just serves them and their, their clients. Oh, so beautiful. Now I have one last burning question and, and you see this all the time. People are always asking this and I want your opinion. You know, you're, she's laughing. She's like, I know what you're going to ask me. Should we put our prices on our websites? Oh, yeah, there are a hundred different answers. Um, (laughs) So my personal feeling is yes. Um, And for me, that is because it's a matter of integrity um, and and transparency. Um, Now, that is not to say that everybody would agree with me, because I know many people who are who would would not. And and certainly, um, you know, if you look around, especially in the coaching industry, right, generally the higher priced the person is, the less likely there is to be pricing on the website um, because they want you to apply and they really want to nurture that relationship before there's a commitment because it is a high investment and you have to be invested on so many levels. Right. But in general, I think, yes. Yes. 
One, it creates transparency. Two, it creates integrity. But three, it also just alleviates so many questions of, hi, I'm interested in lessons. What are your prices? <laughs> because you could just have them there and then they know right away if that aligns with their budget or not. And it creates an element of choice and freedom for them. Um, it saves their time. It saves your time. And it honestly, it helps ensure that they're an ideal client because if they're, if your prices are not in alignment with their budget um, today, they're not going to work with you anyway. <laughs> so we might as well do everybody a favor um, and, and let that, let that go. But also it could be that, you know, it's not, maybe it's not in their budget, but they're really excited about who you are, what you have to offer. And so when they know where, where they need to be in order to work with you, that creates an, uh, a drive within them to create that budget. That's beautiful. Um, but it creates agency is, mm -hmm. is really what it allows for. I've had that happen. I had, uh, I had someone reach out and it was like, uh, do you have a waiting list? I'm not financially in a place right now, but I will be later on because, you know, they, they, they had seasonal work. Right. So they, but they knew that later in the year they would have the funds and that they wanted to be ready. If, if I was taking students, they wanted to be you know, at that time they were ready. And, and I thought I, you know, I was thankful that I had put my prices on there. Um, I want to thank you for your honesty on that uh, as a personal, uh, like always on the internet shopping websites that are not clear in pricing, make me lose my mind. Like I want to Hulk smash and throw my computer and throw the desk. Cause you know, it's like I, I I'm researching and I'm looking for something I need to know. And I don't want to send you an awkward email. And I certainly don't want to call or book an appointment with you to find exactly. out that I have to have that awkward, oh, thanks, but no thanks conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And it can, you know, it can work the other way too. Um, people who easily can afford your services, if you don't have your prices on, they may not, uh, they may not know. They may not right. know that it's an easy yes. That's a good point. That's right? a very good. But point. I think for, for me, um, it's it's really it's about agency and it's about the ability to make an informed choice as a consumer. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And and we I mean, we deserve to be able to do that, especially in this in this day and age. Oh, so helpful. Angela, I could talk to you all day long because I love these conversations and I also love how you are just truly supporting people in in just helping them to understand the, 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 their superpowers. I mean, you really do help pe to uncover that. That must feel good. Does it, do you not have these beautiful moments with your clients? Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, I absolutely do. I absolutely do. I love it. And, you know, it's, what's interesting is, you know, we've been talking about messaging and, you know, my career took a turn, right, from voice teaching into life coaching and merging those two and then into web design. But, you know, even with the different, completely different career paths, in a way, the messaging is the same. And what I really seek to help people do is find their authentic voice and their authentic creative expression in the world. Beautiful. 
Beautiful. Oh, Angela, I'm going to put links to your information. Um, where, where can you give people your website so they can find and follow you? Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, my website is www.awakenedcreator.com. Mm, so and good. I would love to connect with you. Oh, I, I, I can't thank you enough. I always get goosebumps when I talk to Angela because she really truly is, is just a lovely human being with such a big heart. And, and I love the information that you're sharing. We will have you back because websites are a part of our lives. And, uh, and I know that you're helping so many of my listeners. Thank you, Angela. I'm wishing you an amazing day. Thank you so very much, Nikki. It was an absolute pleasure. A very special thank you to my wonderful returning expert guests, Jessica Baldwin, Heather Nelson, and Angela Winter. I know that Jessica is going to be at the Nats convention, and I hope that you will be too. Uh, If you can't be there in person, you can stream it. Check out all the details at natsnats.org. And I also want to give a little teaser to uh, our friends and colleagues who are using the full voice uh, resources. We have new songbooks coming out. We're so excited. Uh, We've been working with our composers and we have a new series called Songs and Studies for Kids. I'm going to be releasing the first level very soon. And if you are going to the convention, you can check it out. Uh, But if you are interested in more information about this new song and study series, studies series, uh, I want you to sign up for our newsletter. Go to Full Voice music.com sign up for our newsletter so you can get in the know my friend and colleague as always teaching is as challenging as it is rewarding the full voice podcast and full voice music is here to make teaching easier i am wishing you inspired teaching and happy singing Mm -hmm.